Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics. Well, you know that Obamacare thing? Well, it kind of got a little bit worse today for the Obama administration. And just when you think he was having a bad day, we're phone tapping Andrea Merkel. And, oh, by the way, just when you think that wasn't worse enough, oh, they appeared on, uh, on the, Senate, uh, the Senate today. It's just a bad day for the administration. That and the, Charles, the uh, John Dingell interview, again, this is Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political roundtable talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He's the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. And to my 12 o'clock, she is the former uh, House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives. She's the former Obama appointee as the General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krep. Hi, Denise. Hi, Justin. How's it feel to be the only Democrat at the table today? It's not going to be a good day, Yeah, it's going to suck for you today. And to my right, ironically, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who has served that last count under four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Oh, you look, you look ready for bear today. You are just <laughs> waiting for this, aren't There's you? There's some stuff to talk about. Yeah. Hey, so yeah, so uh, the big news. Meat. There's this raw meat laid out Well, the, the big news coming today is the Jonas Brothers have quit. They're calling it quits. There's no more Jonas Brothers. What are we going to do? No, they actually... Actually, in case you've been living under a rock, the Obama administration's had a bad week, and it's only Tuesday. Where to begin? Well, let's start with Obamacare. Obamacare, first of all, along with the fact that the website still does not work, on top of the fact that, by the way, the entire site crashed. Not that it wasn't working. It just shut down completely over the weekend, and they are now blaming everything on Verizon now. Uh, Today, in, in the House... Uh, there was a very interesting and very heated hearing uh, of, involving Mar- uh, Marilyn Tavener, who is the head of the Center for Medicaid. Uh, she is the uh, CMS director, who basically went up and apologized for the website, uh, apologized for the flaws, but that's not the end of it. So let's talk about what is the beginning of something big. NBC News is reporting. Lisa Myers is reporting today that the talk of the Obama administration having no idea that private coverage bought and paid for after Obamacare went into action was canceled. 
Well, apparently, Lisa Myers is reporting today, they did know about it, and there is zero transparency coming out of the administration, whether it's from HHS, CMS, or from the White House itself. Uh, Bob Hines, you would think after two elections of this president going forward and saying, we're all about transparency, the old ways of doing things, we're not going to lie, we're not going to cover things up, and we get this news today coming out of NBC. Big hit to the credibility of the White House, is it not? Well, of course it is, <clears throat> particularly when it's part of the Obamacare problem, which uh, gets bigger all the time. Apparently, what the situation is, the president, of course, has always said, if you want to keep your program, your policy in force, uh, you'll be able to do so. Well, that's not true. Why isn't it true? Well, because there are a whole lot of, of insurance policies that are not as rich. They don't have as many different programs or, or benefits as the basic benefit that the uh, Democrats have created in the Obamacare bill. So what we have here is a lot of insurance companies are telling tens of thousands of citizens who have insurance that they like, that they can't keep it, it's been canceled, but what they can do is more buy a more expensive policy which meets the requirements of the, of, of the, of affordable, Care the affordable Care Act. And people are very, very upset. Alan Moore, you, you, you got you to gotta give it to... The White House. This is a White House that can't get out of its own way when it's coming to Obamacare. <laughs> yeah, well, it's their legacy, but it could be a legacy of failure. Yeah, and just a, a, a minor little fact item. It's actually millions who have been informed that they are not going to be able to keep their uh, the, the the insurance they currently have. So back in May, there was a confluence of bad news for this White House. The IRS was targeting conservative groups. The Department of Justice was grabbing phone records um, from the Associated Press. A couple of things came together at the same time, and as I described it at the time, the technical term for that is a shitstorm. Now, if that was family a, show, by the if way, that was a, you know. if that was a shitstorm, what's this? <laughs> well, this is Sharknado has hit. The White House. So, so self-inflicted. These big old sharks flying through the air in this tornado effect of a bronze, and silver, and a gold shark just swarming around the White House. Not only Obamacare, the website, which was last week's diversion, and that's going to get fixed, but that was masking the underlying problems uh, with Obamacare, and the thing you mentioned of this disastrous uh, disclosure of of spying not only on 35 world leaders, but including our closest and most important ally, Angela Merkel. Well, don't go, we're so, going to talk about that later. I'm just saying, about that later. when you put this stuff together, it's Sharknado week at, at this White House. Now, with regard to Obamacare, just a couple more words. So they wanted to build a BMW. They said they were going to build a BMW. They got a they got a Yugo with a whole bunch of extra little pieces involved. You can bring in all the technical experts from the BMW as possible. You will never create a BMW from this Yugo. You won't even create a Ford Fiesta from this Yugo. This is this is the nature of the legislation. It's underlying structural uh, and design flaws that was passed with only Democratic support and no Republicans, um, 
people are blaming Republicans. You want failure. It's not that Republicans want failure. Republicans are very sympathetic to expanding access to coverage. But this particular mechanism, in the eyes of many Republicans and a growing number of the public, won't get us there. But, Denise, a lot of Democrats are saying, look, the Bush administration went through this same problem with enacting Medicare Part D. Uh, that they had similar glitches, similar flaws. Even a then-Senator Barack Obama from Illinois was criticizing the president at the time, saying, look at all these glitches, this is a failure for the administration. Now the other shoes drop. Is there any way that the administration, particularly Barack Obama, can get his way or see his way out of this right now? The only way you're going to be able to get, to get your way out of this is to actually put people in charge who know what technology looks like, know actually how to fix the problem, and who know how to talk to people about how to fix these problems. I mean, I, I've lived through a couple of the tech rollouts before when I was in the administration, and some of them were abysmal because people didn't realize ahead of time what the problems were. And, and you know, when you talk about technology and you talk about a system, you actually have to go through and test it out. And by the way, you need to test it out the day, you know, more than a day before. You need to be testing out weeks before so that you can get all of this fixed. And I don't think they did that. And that's what's going to create problems right now is the fact that they didn't do that and they don't know how to fix it. But, e- but even, even, with the web, even with the website, even with healthcare.gov, Healthcare.gov, apparently, according to several sources, including our friends in Politico, they're saying that several key administration officials knew that there were going to be technical problems with the rollout, and they did not push the rollout back. That was a key decision made by both the President and Secretary Sebelius. However, outside of that, though, Denise, we have a situation where they send up uh, Commissioner Kavanaugh, and she now has no data, no figures. Uh, when she was uh, testifying in front of the House Ways and Means Committee today, uh, Chairman Dave Camp basically said, do you know how many people you have enrolled? Bob Hines, she did not have any answers. The only answer she gave is, we'll have those numbers available in mid-November. That's not what they're looking for. Why? If they have anybody enrolled, why don't they know it? I mean, after all, you'd think they would know it if they've got it. Okay, Denise Krepp? Well, the answer is they know it. They just don't want to say it. I mean, so few. And, and I only say that because I've been on both sides of a hearing. When you're a Hill staffer, you're the one that gets your member to ask the questions of how many. When you're in the administration and you don't want to answer the question, you say, I'll get back to you. Yeah. Uh, on, this, on this particular point, I'm very sympathetic to the administration because... It's too, first of all, people who wanted to sign up had trouble, and there's no urgency to sign up until the end of the year. So who has signed up, what those numbers are, are very deceiving. And if you say 150,000 people have signed up, um, that becomes the lead story and a very disappointing message. It's awkward, but I'm sympathetic to holding back at this time. Having said that, the Republicans are going to just keep beating the hell out of any witness who comes up and pretends not to know. Bob Hines. Uh, there's no way to, uh, I think, define the following, but apparently it is true generally throughout the country. The people who are coming in to get en- enrolled are all, for the most part, older people, not 
the younger people that they absolutely have to have somewhere close to three million of in order to make the program fiscally sound. And it's funny because while uh, Tavener was testifying in front of Ways and Means, Congressman Kevin Brady, member of the committee, asked whether she they could guarantee that no one would have a gap in their health insurance if their old policies were canceled. They also ask you have numbers for uh, the number of young adults that have enrolled that is supposed to be the bankroll for the older people that are going to enroll in this. One, she did not have any numbers, which ticked off most of the committee. Two, her answer to the question of can you guarantee there will be no gaps, she said, and I quote, what I can guarantee is that we have a system that works. It's working. It's just not working at the speed we want. Denise, that's not exactly a good message to tell ways and means. Well, not only is it not a good message, but I don't believe the answer. Again, I've done enough of these contracts before where you put in metrics in the underlying contracts with the people that you've outsourced it to that say, I want to know on a daily basis how many people have enrolled, where they've enrolled, and how many folks you've assisted. So they have that information. They don't want to give it, which we all know why they don't want to give it. And B, when you start talking about will there be gaps or will there be gaps, again, but, that's a dodge. But, but and, Denise, and I don't agree with it. And I'll be honest, and I'm saying that as a Democrat, she should not have said that. But Denise, we're also talking about, I mean, the president came out and made a promise. He made a sustainable promise that said, you will, if you bought private insurance, you will be able to keep it. That is, and the administration knew, arbitrarily false. And I'm going to say as the lawyers, there are going to be more than one smart lawyer who's going to use that statement against the administration when the lawsuits start flying because people don't have insurance. Something's going to happen to them. They're going to get billed, and they're going to say, but the President of the United States said X, Y, and Z, and that's what's going to happen. I don't think it's going to take a smart lawyer to figure that one out. I was going to say, any second-year second law student yeah. at Concord School of Law is going to know that. Uh, Alan Moore, your comments. <laughs> Everything about this program so far is just in the toilet. Um, because of the website problems, which is simply the path to sign up, it's not Obamacare. It's the website that informs you, gives you information, allows you to know if it works, what it will cost you, what your options are, and then encourages and invites you to come forward and sign up, often for subsidized insurance, which generally will be superior by most objective measures to what you currently have. That's, those, are, those are true facts. Having said that, a great many people don't want to spend what it costs to get that fuller, completer system uh, coverage. They like the catastrophic coverage that they now have, mm -hmm. yep. the, the in, relatively inexpensive, not very rich in benefits, but inexpensive, affordable, and if they're pretty healthy and have coverage for the getting run over by a bus, but are perfectly willing to pay for all their doctor visits and uh, mental health care if they need it, God forbid they should have to pay $10 a month for birth control pills, but these are things that the administration has said, no, 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 that's all included. And, and some of that stuff is even free and everybody has to offer it. So now we're learning what all those so-called freebies mean. And you, you, if, if the administration had been more forthcoming and said, 
you're going to like how you come out of this. Many of you will be able to keep what you got. <laughs> that wasn't the message they want to convey, but no, now it is coming back and haunting them in a big way. Um, and the White House is trying to modify the narrative. Well, yeah, you can't keep a substandard plan was the latest from, yeah. uh, from Carney. Well, fine. That's not what anybody ever said. And it was said over and over and over again, including in last year. So they've just, you know, again, that's a little bit of a sideshow. And it, 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 it doesn't get to the heart but of Alan, the question. But, but along with not getting to the heart of the question, and not only is this just a sideshow, is this the beginning of a larger snowball, the fact that what Republicans had hoped for at one time in fact, could be possible. The young people aren't signing up. The older people that are signing up are getting tax breaks for doing so. This could implode under its own weight? Absolutely. No, no, no. The people who are signing up, and, and we, we are very supportive of those people, many of us, including, I mean, most Republicans say people who have pre-existing conditions and can't get into a pool and we've got one member or one person sitting around the table who's been desperately waiting for this opportunity and we had a guest last week who's got a wife with a very very serious pre-existing condition and he can't find anything affordable they are thrilled they are all over this wanting to take advantage of a system which now is going to give them some access the problem is that there is so much other stuff that got loaded onto this program and the financing was dependent upon the younger, healthier people coming in and joining, not and a small matter of five hundred billion dollars in new taxes over the next ten years to help pay for all of these subsidies. Um, that's the stuff that's now beginning to come forward into the public. Denise Kraft. You know, my concern is that a lot of people aren't doing as much as they should be doing because they think that this plan is about to collapse. And by people talking about what they should be doing, you have a lot of doctors out there who need to be implementing this, a lot of pharmacies out there that you need to be implementing this, a lot of, you know, folks that are part of the medical community that you don't necessarily think of. And if this plan collapses, these people are going to be all... As Alan said, I can't say it's a family-friendly show. Um, the Sharknado. Sharknado or Blank Out of Luck. So you, you, you've got that problem that's going on. And then you, you have the other problem, you know, and I, I've seen this on a personal site. You know, my dad's a family practice doctor in North Carolina. And I called my mother the other day and I said, well, how, how's dad doing? She said, I don't know. I never see him. I said, well, why, Mom? She said, because your father is always at work right now trying to implement Obamacare. So if all of these poor doctors that are trying to implement it as well, they're paying a fortune to do this. And by the way, if they don't do it, they're getting fined. And not only is you know, people like my father being fined, but when they want to appeal this fine because this process is so bad, it takes them two years to appeal it. So this is a cluster. Can I say that? Yes. yes. A cluster it's, shark. It's yeah, a cluster, cluster shark. shark. Yeah. We'll, we'll a cluster it, blank. Yeah, yes. a cluster blank of magnificent proportions that is impacting a lot of small businesses, and people aren't being held accountable for it. But Alan Moore. Your dad, your dad is... Uh, 
does he have the option of retiring if he wants to? Oh my God, my father couldn't retire fast enough. I mean, to be honest with you, that's, you know, he went to a medical conference in uh, California about a month ago, and that's what everybody was talking about, was how fast could everybody retire because of the paperwork that is about to be dumped on them. There's, pa there's, there's, there's yeah. paperwork, and there's new rules on how much they can get reimbursed for things. Right. Part, part of the so-called savings is just to, to say, hospitals, this is all you get. Yeah. Doctors, this is all you get. Hospitals are pretty pretty much stuck and are going to try to figure out how to do that and shift costs to other insurers and stuff. Doctors at a certain age are are are, are increasingly well, saying, that, that I think right it's now. time to hang it up. It's not worth it anymore yeah. Yeah, for I, me if I'm over 60, if I'm over 65, if I'm 70. Who needs this shark? Right. Well, the, the funny thing about it is, Bob, is we're seeing a vast migration of doctors in their late 50s, early 60s, who are deciding now to retire because of Obamacare, and it's extremely prevalent in rural areas right now. Several, several studies are showing that because of Obamacare, rural doctors are now going to retire, forcing big problems on your rural communities in places like North Dakota, Wyoming, Montana. How do, you, how do you get around that? I think small town America, you know, mid-size of town America, where the many of the older professional doctors are, been, you know, their hometowns and they've been there forever, I think they're going to decide that they just can't put up with all this extra paperwork. They don't understand it. they got all kind of new rules and regulations, and, you know, they can retire, and they're going to do it, and they're going to, they're going to you know, some young guy may or may, may not come in. Denise Kraft. And if they don't retire, what's happening within the medical community is that everybody is going into the big hospital. So you're not going to see the small private family doctor consortiums that you had in the past. You're going to see everybody working for the hospitals because at least the hospitals will have people to be able to process all this paperwork. But Alan Moore, you know, when we, when we talk about, you know, Obamacare is going to ultimately save the taxpayers' money. The Republicans are saying, you know, it's not going to be saving the taxpayers' money. In fact, the taxpayers are going to pay for this either way. If a young person opts not to get Obamacare, they just paid a $150 fine, but they happen to be out bungee jumping. They crack their skull open. They require high-end, you know, you know, brain surgery to save their lives. If they don't have health care, the hospital is not going to turn him away. They're going to save his life, but they could sue him. Well, that's going to be like trying to get blood out of a rock. He declares bankruptcy. The hospitals are still holding the tab for $400,000 worth of surgery and medical costs. And when they don't get paid after trying to sue this bloodless rock, they're going to go to CMS, and they're going to do it as a tax write-off. Taxpayers are going to pay for this anyway. I'm sorry our, our good buddy Al isn't here, because last week his answer to that was, <laughs> screw him. Don't let them into the emergency room. You can't if they do don't that. sign up, they're done. They can roll around the uh, in a hospital bed out in the parking lot. Um, but but that's not how our system works. That's not who we are. But it is abs it, the, the relatively low financial penalty that for not signing up, which is controversial in its own right. Right. And the fact that emergency room has to take you in means that. Younger people, healthier people, um, or people simply who find their options unaffordable will find themselves uh, going in, in that direction, paying, paying the, the penalty, 
um, which will be 1% of their salary, of their wages for in year one, 2% year two, 2.5% in subsequent years, um, which is not nothing, but, it's, but it, it's a lot less than most of these insurance options uh, that are being talked about. Now, a lot of people are also going to discover that there's subsidies, and they can buy because their income's relatively low, and they'll get subsidized. But you need younger, healthy people to make the numbers work. It's arithmetic, and if you don't get that revenue in, what's going to happen a year from now? All the people with pre-existing conditions and who've been waiting and jump in and are and are, and are grabbing the, the health care, which which they have begged and pleaded for and been at risk for, they're going to be in the system. But if enough money doesn't come in from younger, healthier people and the taxes and the so-called savings in, in medical reimbursement, the insurance companies who put their proposals out there with certain expectations on what would happen, no promises, expectations, they're pretty smart people, they kind of know what, what, what people will and won't do, but if, if they horribly misjudge this, then a year from now they'll be saying, your rates across the board are going to go up by, we'll pick a number, 20%, because we didn't get enough younger, healthier people in. Well, the, the magic number. the fundamental fear. Whoa. That's the fear of policymakers, of Democrats, of the president. And the Republicans who think that's going to happen, that doesn't mean they want it to happen. They just don't see how to avoid it. Well, Denise, the magic number seems to be somewhere in the 2.8 to 3 million registers that have to be young people under the age of 35 to help sustain Obamacare as it's written. Does the fact that Kavanaugh and more than likely Sebelius will probably not have that number when she testifies on the Hill next week, is this possibly a warning sign to the administration that we might have a bigger problem. We're not getting the two to three million that we're expecting. Yes, it, it, because I would have expected those numbers if for no other reason than that demographic has a lot of children. I mean, I, I've, I'm part of that demographic, and one of the reasons I have insurance is because of the children I have. I mean, my daughter um, had a nasty bike accident. She flipped over her bike ended up with a concussion and ended up in the emergency room. And all I kept thinking was, oh, thank goodness we have uh, insurance because we had to pay for scans, we had to pay for everything associated with it. We couldn't have, you know, afforded to do that. Right. And, and that was just a simple bike accident. I mean, when you have kids, you're going to the emergency room on a regular basis. As you guys know, you've got a broken arm, you've got, you know, you've got a scrape, you did something or other. Sure. And that gets to be expensive. And if those folks aren't going in and asking for this insurance, then we've got a big problem. You know, I've got to tell you something. So right before the show, before everybody got here, I actually logged on through the D.C. Health Exchange, which, as a resident of D.C., which I am, is my subsequent health network, logged on and browsed the actual policies that are available to me as a 42-year-old male making X amount of dollars. Right now, if I were to get just the median silver plan, would cost me in the, in the range of about $6,000 a year out of pocket. That is that's nothing to shake a stick at, Bob Hines. I mean That's your premium. That that's yeah. just my premium. Yeah. That doesn't include the five thousand dollar deductible which would be out of pocket yeah. if I had some serious medical problems. And all the co pays. And all the co pays as well. We're talking about a twenty five to fifty dollar co pay, depending on which one I do. 
if I'm looking at that and going, wait a minute, that's just nuts. And oh, by the way, because I make a certain amount of money, I don't qualify for tax credits, so I'm paying it at full premium. There's no reason for me to sign up. Justin, what do you think those of us who have children are going to be paying? You're oh, I already know. You're, man, you're, looking, at, you're looking at almost $2,000 a month in premium for a family of four. Yep. Two young kids, two yep. adults making a certain amount of money over the age of 35. Yep. That, those are huge numbers, Bob Hines. They are huge. And I would venture to say that the numbers we're talking about right now, if all the young singles don't sign up, that two and a half to three million of them sign up, a year from now it'll be 25% higher. It's going to be, it's, it, this is going but to be... Def- but this doesn't that be not the- fly in the face of what the president and the administration have been trying to message out to the public? Well, of course, but they are trying to say as little as possible, and I'm sure they're all... Um, <clears throat> having a hell of a time <laughs> going to the bathroom regularly because this is really a mess. It really is. The whole thing is just a disaster. And let me just step back from the, you know, the nitty gritty here and get up on a mountain and, and say something that maybe is, maybe is kind of uh, pie in the sky, but you have to remind yourself that this is a piece of legislation that the president decided he wanted. The economy wasn't doing well. It was a big mess going on. We remember what the recession was like, but this is what he wanted. He didn't ask, he didn't go to any Republicans, he didn't talk to any of the people on, the health, on their health universe on the Republican side. It was all Democrats. There wasn't one single vote in the House or in the Senate by a Republican in favor of this bill because nobody had a chance to have an input. Now, I think that a bill that is this important, a piece of legislation that touches literally every person in America, it would have been much wiser for the president to at least engage the Republicans, which he did not, in a debate about how to get it done and to get some, get some things done that would, that would make the Republicans be, at least to some extent, buying into the program. As Alan said, we needed something like this. We needed a program with 30 or 40 million Americans not having any insurance and the numbers only going up. We needed some kind of an overall insurance program. But the Democrats wanted to do it their way, and now they're basically, uh, they've, rushed it, they've rushed it through, in effect. And it's looking more and more like it's the worst disaster you ever saw. And it, it is, that is not a good thing for the country. Well, we've got to go to a break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about the administration's woes with both Obamacare and certain revelations that came out about NSA. Bad, bad, bad week for the White House. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, 
Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Back Room, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Part of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to continue the discussion of the bad week that the administration's having. Uh, we're going to continue our quick discussion on what's happening with Obamacare. Uh, the, the reality is, uh, Denise Krep, the, the president really pushed this thing forward without truly thinking their way through it. Uh, no Republican buy-in. There should have been some moderate Republicans that would have conceptually bought into the idea, but there was never a business case put forward on how it could be successful once it's implemented, or there's no roadmap for success being put out by the administration. Well, I mean, first of all, while I agree with Bob on those parts, you know, the fact that there aren't Republican votes doesn't mean that Republicans didn't get any input in this. I mean, People did talk to Republicans, but I think there was a feeling back in 2009 and 2010 that this isn't going to happen, they don't have the votes, this can't happen. And then it did happen, and then it was, oh my goodness, it's happened, now what do we do? And and I I think one of the lessons learned coming out of this is, you know, regardless of whether or not you think a piece of legislation is going to happen, you at least need to start making some phone calls, and you need to be talking to people, and you need to say, hey, this is some of the costs that are up front. And by the way, I, I say that on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, I say to my, my colleagues, hey, wait a second, folks. You guys need to be talking to the Chambers of Commerce. You need to be talking more to business. You need to be making more inroads into that community. Just because it's not a traditional Democratic bastion doesn't mean you shouldn't be talking to people. It means that you need to make more of an effort to talk to people because these are the ones that are actually implementing this. Alan Moore. Uh, just uh, reminding ourselves a little history here. Um, the, the record's pretty clear that, that the, the President Obama's venture into the healthcare swamp was some, <laughs> something of an accident. It was, a, it was a late call before an important speech. He laid out, staked out some territory. Then he, it, during his campaign, then he and, and, uh, and Hillary Clinton got into it over what kind of health reform made the most sense. Well, if you remember, she's the one who was suggesting an individual mandate, and he was opposed to it. 
That was the campaign. Then he's elected. Then the entire economy is deep, deep in the toilet, and we're trying to figure out what to do. And there was a real question about whether the high priority he, the president, was putting on health reform was the appropriate way to spend time, energy, and effort, given what was going on in the economy. Let me interrupt real real quick. Does this work, or is this as bad as a possible failure if the economy is as strong as it was, let's say, in 2005? Well, it's, it, it, it can't say. It's just a, a totally different enterprise. I mean, the fact of the matter is we needed all hands on deck all the time to try to figure out how to get people back to work and, you know, how to stop the damage and get people back to work. And this, this became something of a diversion. I also happen to believe that, that, that the president wanted to repay Ted Kennedy in some ways for his early endorsement. And, and Ted Kennedy has been talking about health reform for a long time. Ted Kennedy would never have, have thought he could get this much. Um, he was the guy who always took a half a loaf or a quarter of a loaf or a couple of slices and then kept, kept moving forward. But what the other thing that happened in 2008 and in the Senate then in 2009 was what I uh, referred to as the curse of 60 votes. If one party has 60 votes, whatever one thinks about the Senate and, and <laughs> filibusters and, and so on, if you have 60, there's a lot of pressure to say, screw those other guys, we've got the votes. There was some outreach. There were ideas included in Obamacare that came from Republicans, but ideas don't a construct make. Rahm Emanuel, I'm not his biggest fan, but Rahm Emanuel was advising the president to work with Republicans, to find the common ground, take what you can get. Well, that's part of the nation. Finance Committee had six members, three Republicans, three Democrats, who spent months working towards common ground on some stuff. And ultimately, the Democrats said, not enough, not enough, too slow. Get them out of here. Well, and that was part of the reason why Rahm Emanuel left to run for mayor of Chicago. I think he wanted to go be mayor. I, I don't know that that was uh, a factor, but it was. He, he gave good advice, which was ignored. And but but he was also it, it was contrary to what Nancy Pelosi was saying, what Harry Reid was saying. It's this is our time. We have 60 votes. We can make this happen. And they did. The president was something of a bystander, as he often is. He wasn't right in the middle figuring out what will work, what about this, what about that. And, and now we're reaping what we sowed. But, Bob Hines, when we, when we talk about the, the bystander-in-chief, which is a tagline that CNN has been using all day, again, this goes back to a core situation, a core issue inside this administration is – the messaging and the ability to work Congress has been absolutely dismal for the Obama administration. Is that accurate? Uh, I think it's fair to say that the president probably, uh, at, at this stage in his career, he's been president now for, what, five and a half five years? Five and a half years. He probably has fewer close friends on Capitol Hill than maybe any president that I can remember. And I think it's just, now there, he has a lot of, he has, uh, you know, obviously... The leader is uh, his man and that kind of thing. But I mean, people who really care about his success and people he can stay, he can just call up and talk to, and 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 and, and discuss and get some feedback. And he is, I think, he's he he really does lead from behind. And he's sometimes he's so far behind, he's not he's not up with what's but going on. Is is that 
is, is that a result of not spending enough time in Washington or surrounding yourself with too many people from Chicago, not well, enough people from Washington? Well, I don't know that it's it's not spending enough time with people in Washington. A lot of, you know, uh, we can name a lot of presidents in recent time, uh, Mr. Bush one and uh, two, and Mr. Clinton, who hadn't spent any time in, in Washington, both of them were, ele- were elected and reelected. The point is, at least they talked to people and, got, and they started dealing with each other and with, with, the, with the people on the Hill, and that's important. The president really needs to have folks up on Capitol Hill who, who really care about him, and, and because he, had, he has reached out to them and brought them into a circle of counselors and people he can talk to. Denise Krupp. But that was the strangest part about being a political in this administration. I mean, the majority of us either came from Chicago or were Hill staffers. And the reason that a lot of us were Hill staffers is because the Obama administration made the decision that they were going to hire lobbyists. So when you take out the entire lobbying corps here in D.C. and you, you start looking at the second and the third layers, you end up with a lot of Hill staffers. And I was one of those Hill staffers. So I had a lot of friends on the Hill and I'd want to go and talk to them. And I was amazed by the direction I was given by upstairs, upstairs being at that point the, the Department of Transportation, where I was told, you're not allowed to go to the Hill. What, what do you mean I'm not allowed to go to the Hill? These are my friends, and I can help you share this message. I can help you shape the message you want to do. And I said, no. I mean, and it was so controlling of the message. that I kept thinking, you are suiting yourself in the foot because you're not letting us talk to the very people who actually can help us. You know, you know so it reminds me of a story. It's when not I, the foot. It's not the foot that they're shooting themselves, <laughs> and that's correct. But that, that reminds me of a story. It's you know, the shark. Yeah. It's the shark, it is. The shark, yes. but, I remember when I first moved up here to D.C. back in 2000, 2003, and I started working the Hill in 2004. And I had a, my best friend from high school, who was a prominent political lawyer here in town, he at that time was working as uh, a key senior, senior staffer at the time. And he gave me a phone call and he said, you know, you haven't been by to see me once. I said, well, I don't like lobbying my friends. He goes, you're an idiot. He says, those are the exact people that you need to be talking to on the Hill if you want to get stuff done. Just because we happen to know each other, I'm the one guy you can absolutely trust with your message. Those are the people you should be talking to. Obama doesn't have that kind of connectivity. Alan Moore. Yeah. Um, Obama came to town. He took the town by storm. Um, he was an accidental senator. Uh, but... He took advantage of the opportunity and more power to him. And he had a great message and a great story. And, and a lot of people were very attracted to that, uh, including me. Um, and having said that, he was a senator for two years, during which time he was in demand all over the country. Everybody wanted to meet this young, charismatic guy. By going out around the country, he started meeting people. You're talking about Barack Obama, not Ted Cruz. Barack Obama. (laughs) You're not talking about Ted Cruz. That is absolutely correct. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Um, Cruz thinks that he's the new Obama. He's not. Anyway, uh, and he turns his head and he thinks, let me give this a shot. Who else is there? And, you know, Hillary Clinton's got lots of baggage and no one else seems to be. Well, Biden was there, but... You know, maybe I can do this. And there were a lot of people excited about him. His second two years in the Senate, he was a full-time candidate for president who dropped into the Senate from time to time. He did not have the core of knowledge of people, of process, of place. He knew absolutely nothing about the House. And 
these are not impossible burdens. But what you need, if you're new and an outsider, you know, and he wasn't the total outsider like a Jimmy Carter or a Ronald Reagan. George H.W. Bush, by the way, had been and a long time. Long time. Yeah. He is hardly an outsider. Yeah, right. his, son, his, his son, on the other hand, um, had much less experience, although he had spent a lot of time yeah. in the White House with his dad. But, but it's not so much whether you're an outsider or an insider. It's what you do with it. And what, what Obama, his problem in my mind was he succeeded so amazingly at a time that he, and I hate saying this, that he lacked understanding and or lacked humility about how to do stuff. And bringing Rahm Emanuel in uh, was not the best move because he was a take no prisoner, prisoners, cut them off at the knees, uh, deal maker, leaker to the press, etc. Talented guy, yeah. not to be chief of staff. And and what what the, the president did not have a group of seasoned, well established professionals. Denise put her finger on a key problem. They set these barriers around people who could come in and said, if, you're, if, have, if you've been a registered lobbyist within the last two years, even for uh, Friends of the Earth, the Humane Society, the Environmental Defense Fund, you can't work in this administration until you've had a cleansing. And, and so he greatly reduced the kinds of people, but it all comes back to him, who he brings in, what his priorities are, who he listens to. So we, we're talking about symptoms, but the core of the problem is Coming back to this guy who I think thought, look what I did. I could do it all. I'm really Bob smart. Hines. I'm the third person who's going to touch this area because I think it is fundamental. I think Denise and Allen are both correct. Most of the lobbyists in this town who have great credibility are former staffers of senators and congressmen or committees, some of them former members. These are people who have credibility on Capitol Hill. These are people who, are, who have friends on Capitol Hill and are not going to bullcrap them. They're, not gonna, they're gonna play it straight with them, but they're gonna argue their case and show and try to work, work things out so that a bill can move forward. And if they have to give something, they will, but they're, try, they're trying to get something done. And these are the people who were re, who were never had an opportunity, as Alan said rightly. You know, you, if you were a lobbyist, you couldn't you couldn't get a job. But Bob, you, you could know, have been the closest. You could have been a retired senior senator, Democratic. You couldn't get a job. You, you you just can't do it. And it was so stupid because they sat there with a bunch of people, except Rom, a bunch of people from Chicago who couldn't have found the washroom in the Senate, and they were the people who were in charge of making policy. But, okay, but Bob Hines. We, we're, we're 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 talking about you know a, a a noted outsider you know accidental senator accidental rising star in the party, but we've seen that with other outsiders. I mean, you look at Bill Clinton. A lot of former governors that were great presidents: Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton. You know, these are people that came from the outside. What's the difference? Well, let me give you an example of what the difference is. Everyone you named was an elected official who had spent a substantial amount of time in state politics, the governors. And when they came to Washington, every one of them you named hired some smart guys. They hired people like Jim Baker, 
They hired people like you know, Brzezinski for foreign policy. They hired people who were smart. They didn't make the mistake of bringing their friends in. The last guy who brought his friends in was Jimmy Carter. And he saw and what happened saw to him. Term. Exactly. The reality is, this guy was, uh, I think he's very cerebral. He's very smart. He may be smarter than a lot of us are, but wisdom ain't part of what he brought with him. Denise Kraft. I'm going to argue that my party, the Democratic Party, needs to start making friends with the business community, and it needs to make friends with the people who actually make decisions. From what I saw in the administration and elsewhere, we lack that strength, and we lack that strength because people say you're a Democrat, therefore you must like X, Y, and Z. And my answer is, well, I like X, Y, and Z, but I also like A, B, and C. And the reason I do is because you need to know how to make decisions. And if you don't know how to make the decisions, then you shouldn't be put in the power position where you have to make those decisions. Is this a a presidency, is this a, a caucus presidency? where the president's unable to make key decisions and he's got to caucus the thing out? Yes. And, and, and by, by the way, you know, not only is he, he doing that, but you've got people in the administration that are doing that, and it's killing us, and it's going to kill our party because we need to be able to say we can make decisions, and we know how to do that. Alan Moore. Uh, two thoughts. One, on the, the, the question of these, these other outsiders, everybody you mentioned was a governor, pointed out. When you're a governor, whether you've got a lot of power or not so much power, you have to learn how to deal with a legislature to get stuff done. Those are skills that you learn by doing, not just something you get out of a book or being a community organizer or somehow abstractly picking it up. They're skills you learn over time. And I think the point of having people around you who are experienced, if you don't, is people who have some experience doing that, knowing how the different pieces fit together and how to put a deal together. So, so I think, yeah, but I Alan, think the key... Alan, Barack Obama was a state senator in Springfield I'm, before he came He was here. not a governor. No. He was not an executive. These guys I'm talking... You mentioned them, Reagan, Carter, um, George W. Bush, um, Clinton, were all governors. Um, they'd all been chief executives working with the legislature. Now, but the other thing I wanted to say, I wanted to say something about Denise talking about, about the business community because that's, a, that's another shortcoming that Democrats often suffer from. And I'm remembering in 1993, right after Obama was, uh, excuse me, right after took office with Al Gore as vice president, uh, I was in business and I did some lobbying in my business. Um, and... I had a business partner who was very close inside to uh, the Clinton folks, and and a, a senior Clinton person said to my to my partner, "We need to bring business people in." This was early in 1993. We need to bring some business people into the White House and meet them. We don't know them. Do you know them? My business partner came to me and said, "Here's an opportunity for us." to invite 100 people to the White House to meet the president and the vice president. And it's, we're on it. And, and what a was, deal. What a deal yeah. if, you're, if you're trying to be a lobbyist. And uh, so we put a list together. They had a lovely event. Clinton was magical as he can be, embracing you, looking you in the eye, getting one question in, and hugging you, moving you on to the next person. This was my first up-close look at him, and I thought, wow. This guy's good. And I knew Al Gore because uh, I had been a staff director in the Senate. When he came to the Senate, I knew him pretty well. 
Um, he was perfectly pleasant. Clinton had the magic. The point is, they kind of recognized, and I'll happily give Gore some of the, you know, some credit, but it's ultimately Clinton who had to make that decision. We need to reach out to a different group of people. How do we do that? Denise Crap. Well, and it's not only reaching out to them, but it's delivering. I mean, you could have as many meetings of business as you want to, but until you actually can help them, and by that I mean with the regulations and, and with the policies that you're doing, then you're not helping them. I mean, I was at a hearing today, it was a maritime hearing, and there were uh, four, uh, four agencies testifying, the NTSB, um, EPA, Coast Guard, and, and uh, Federal Maritime Commission. And uh, Chairman Duncan Hunter looked at the Coast Guard and looked at FMC and said, so you're actually helping the maritime industry. And then he looked at uh, EPA and NTSB and said, so you guys obviously had nothing else to do. You're looking for something to do. My goodness, what are you doing? Because all you're doing is hurting businesses. And it was a very dark way to look at these agencies. Again, four different government agencies and saying, hey, wait a second. EPA and NTSB and, and sometimes Coast Guard because you can't give them by completely. What are you doing with all of these regulations? Are you doing a full cost calculation on how much everything is going to you know, cost when you start implementing? Because by the way, you four agencies, you're not the only ones that are going to be regulating certain entities. You're going to have a lot of others that are regulating at the same time and the costs that are being put on small businesses right now are immense and if we're going to ask these small businesses to get out and actually help the economy, then we need to have a very stark conversation with them of which regulations can we get rid of to help you actually improve the economy. Yeah, no, very true. But the woes for the administration don't stop there. We've got an international situation we got to deal with. <laughs> yeah, for those of you who have not seen, apparently uh, this administration has, uh, it has been revealed that they have been tapping the phones and emails of several foreign uh, uh, foreign heads of state, including one of our closest allies and, and a, I don't want to say former big supporter of Barack Obama, uh, German Chancellor Andrea Merkel. It, it strikes me as odd that all of a sudden now, and by the way, the U.S. ambassador to Spain was called on the carpet by the Spanish foreign minister yesterday in what some inside the State Department are calling a very fiery and very vibrant discussion and a very, very solemn mea copa by the ambassador to Spain. When you look at this, when you talk about a presidency that's talking about transparency, this is a huge, huge mess up for what was supposed to be a transparent president, Bob Hines. Well, yes, it is. I mean, we have a situation where um, the NSA has been doing... I, since the, uh, since the Bush administration, a lot of listening to a lot of telephone calls. Uh, I am amazed that the president did not know the extent of it. Now, it's been, it's been enlarged. I don't know when it started talking to, uh, listening to people like uh, uh, Chancellor uh, Merkel. Merkel, but I suspect it was in the last few years. I don't know how long ago it goes back. But the fact that, you know, look, everybody knows that, you know, there's a whole lot of spying going back and forth between everybody. But the fact of the matter is when you start, start listening in to the, to, the, uh, to the President of the United States or the Chancellor of, of uh, Germany or the Prime Minister of Great Britain, I mean, you're really, you're really going beyond the pale. These are your allies. These are your friends. And it's, it's amazing to me that the agency and I don't think it did. It's an agency that the, to me, that an agency would start doing 
examining calls at that level without the president knowing. Well, here's the other problem is you now, as of today, you had appearing in front of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, both National Security Agency Director uh, General Alexander mm -hmm. and uh, James Clapper, the Director of National Intelligence, DNI. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, Clapper and Alexander both said in front of the Intelligence Committee today that the press reports about the NSA gathering information in uh, Western Europe is completely false. Uh, this is not information we collected on on European citizens, quote unquote. Alexander said, uh, because apparently we were looking into uh, the heads of state of Italy, uh, uh, President Hollande of France, Chancellor Merkel, the President of Brazil, several key allies. We're they're saying this is categorically untrue. At, at what point is this going to become a big hole for the administration, these crap? It's already a hole, Justin. I mean, the, the countries that you're naming have had their own problems in the past. I mean, when you start looking at um, Germany, you start looking at the historical divide between East and West Germany and the Stasi blatantly, you know, looking at everybody and asking neighbors to report on neighbors. That's Germany. When you look at Spain, you're looking at the Franco era, which was equally as traumatic to the Spanish government. So the populaces of those countries are extremely sensitive to the, the fact that people are spying on them, their own government spied on them. Now we've got the United States, who supposedly was an ally. And by the way, when you start talking about the Spanish, that's incredibly complicated because Franco kicked the United States out of Spain, didn't want to become part of NATO, and we were only beginning to actually have a closer rapprochement with them over the past couple of years. So what we're doing right now to these guys is merely saying, hey, wait a second, not only are we spying on you, now we're letting you know we spied on you. So how do you feel about us? You still want our NATO bases? You still want all of the troops, by the way, we still have a lot of them in West Germany, actually, sorry, now currently in Germany. Do you still want us there to help you out? Alan Moore. Um, none of us should be surprised that we all spy on each other. Um, we should also reflect on the fact that post 9-11, um, now 12 years ago, we changed everything, both in terms of ramping up the amount of money we were investing in surveillance, the kind of surveillance we were able to do, and we were ramping up at the same time that technology was changing, and we have cell phones everywhere, and we have email everywhere, and those are typically, especially on the email front, sort of centered in the U.S. and U.S. technology. So we wanted more information. We wanted to have a much broader uh, dragnet than we ever had before at the same time that we could access stuff through technology if we were willing to put the money in to do it. All of that has occurred. Now, does that mean we should be listening in on Mrs. Merkel? I don't know if we're listening in on her. This is an interesting question to watch. Were we eavesdropping on the calls or were we simply monitoring who was being called? That's, that difference makes a difference, but we don't know yet. There's the sense, and once the late night comics start creating conversations that they claim <laughs> occurred, that, that's sort of where the narrative is. But there's a bigger problem, though. The bigger problem for this White House and this president is he's getting the rap, and the White House is letting him do this, of not knowing stuff until it explodes onto the scene. That's what happened last May uh, in my famous, I'll be willing to call it a shark storm, before this week's Sharknado. Um, and, and 
now we have the, the, the website problem, the fact that people can't keep their insurance. Oh, who knew? And gosh, the, the Wall Street Journal had a big story on Sunday that said the president didn't know we were tapping Merkel until this summer. Presumably, he learned that, if that's when he learned it, and more on that in a moment, when we knew that Snowden was out there, and the question was, what's, what does he have? What's going to be released? What are the most embarrassing things that gonna, are going to happen, and what do we need to do about it? What the, what the, narrative, the narrative goes that the president said last summer, stop, stop, stop tapping Merkel or stop tracking or monitoring her. Now, my view of that is garbage. I believe, and this is another trap the president's getting himself into, I think he probably knew, but he didn't want to say he knew because then it's more on him. So you can't have it both ways in this world, this and I think up, that's what he's trying this to do. This brings up behind a, a bigger issue is you would, you would think that the commander-in-chief, the ultimate responsibility of our intelligence community, the president of the United States, would know of a significant intelligence activity such as tapping the phones of foreign leaders. Is there a credibility issue here with Barack Obama saying, I had no idea, you're talking to the wrong guy? You, better, he, you better believe it. I mean, it's pretty hard for me, as just the guy who's been around Washington for a long time, to believe the President of the United States, whoever he is, hasn't said to his top people, his, you know, his chief of staff and his uh, you know, security people, uh, I don't want to be surprised across the administration. And then all you got to do is make some telephone calls to various agencies and say no surprises from the CIA, from NSA, from this, that, or the other thing. It ain't that hard to do. You make a call like that from the White House. I, you're going to make sure that thing. somebody's going to call from that, from that department and say, hey, hey, Mr. Chief of Staff, let the president know X. I don't believe that the president doesn't know what's going on. Denise, and boy, if he does, it's even worse. Denise Kraft. Well, I, I want to know what the lawyers knew. Uh, there was a, um, a really interesting article in the American Bar Association uh, magazine this past summer where everybody's talking about, uh, is it the 25th anniversary? No, it's going to be 30 of, of Watergate. Uh, that was uh, 73. Okay, so now, I'm sorry, now we're looking at 40. 40. 40. So, so they were talking about the 40th. You're younger than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it's, it's the 40th anniversary of Watergate, and they talked about in the, what was going on with Watergate, and they said it was a very um, interesting lesson learned from the lawyer's perspective of what happened, who did what they did, and who didn't do what they did, and it's called the Midnight um, Massacre. Yeah. Um, and they, they were, it was very self-congratulatory. It was like, we've learned so much, we've done so much better. And then you look at what's going on here, and I'm thinking, well, what did we learn as lawyers? You know, what type of legal memos, for example, were written to justify this type of thing? And by the way, should they have written those memos? Alan Moore. Yeah. Um, before we condemn the president in this particular case for saying something that's not true, I don't believe he has said, I didn't know. The Wall Street Journal said that he didn't know until summer and then said, cut this stuff out, allowing the press secretary to come forward and say, let me say categorically, we are not listening in and we will not listen in to the heads of our allies. But he conveniently left out, eh, we may have done it in the past, but we're not doing it now. So 
but 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 the, whereas the Wall Street Journal has said the president was only learning for the first time, the White House has not confirmed that, has not said that. I don't believe that, but I, but I do believe that the White House has got itself into uh, a, 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 a swamp here because they can either say, well, actually, no, we did know, but we didn't change it until we knew that the, the word was going to get out, uh, or, geez, I didn't know. It, it, either way, they look really bad, and the longer that they let this linger, the the press is going to be like a pack of sharks on this yeah. piece of raw meat to find out who knew what when. Well, you know, and, and, and the press, as, as, as Dana Milbank in the Washington Post said, the old question is, what did you know and when did you know it? And right. The, and, the, and the White House's answer is, not much until about a minute ago. Yeah. Right. Well, and but, but the thing that, about it is, that's about as won't perfect. work on this one. No. Well, you know, Adam it never works and it always comes out. Well, Congressman Adam Schiff from California, who sits on the House Intelligence Community, actually asked uh, uh, Clapper, the Director of National Intelligence, he's actually questioning, wait a minute, this is a legal issue. You, as the intelligence community, are supposed to this committee, in fact, any time there is, quote-unquote, significant intelligence committee, or significant intelligence activities. He went on to ask the question, quote, would you consider that a wiretap of a leader of an allied country would be a significant intelligence activity requiring a report to this committee, unquote? That's a huge, huge question that the administration has not answered. Well, of course. <laughs> they didn't, he didn't answer it? <laughs> they, 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 they haven't answered. Okay. They, they, you know, Clapper's response was, and I quote, that's something I guess we could discuss as to whether that level of detail is required, unquote. That, that is not a level of detail. No. <laughs> I, I, I heard an interesting anecdote uh, just this morning relating to all of this, and supposedly that Richard Nixon, after he was president, when he was observing Reagan in the middle of the Iran-Contra stuff, uh, said to some, someone who wrote this down and reported it later, he said, you know, Reagan should just say, I had no idea. I didn't know. And then, and then Nixon says, "Of course, I could never get away with saying something like that <laughs> because he was such a micromanager, and he loved that stuff. And Reagan was kind of floating around sometimes. And 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 this is Obama's problem that if if he wants to pretend that he didn't know, it's not credible for him, right. even with a White House of uh, where its competency is, is is in question. Denise Kraft. Again, where are those legal memos? If you're going to do this type of thing, everybody demands a memo. And I only say that as being a former chief counsel. When my administrator wanted to do something incredibly innocuous, I still had to write those legal memos. I still had to provide a legal justification. So who wrote those legal memos, and when are we going to see them? But, I mean, but this is not... I, I mean, this this is not Reagan not knowing. This is not a clandestine arms deal into the Sandinistas in Central America. This is actual. I mean, you know, enemies of the of the program type stuff that Nixon did. These are friends of the program that they're tapping. That's what's remarkable about all this, Denise. Right. So my question is, when did the Department of Defense General Counsel know what? Was did the CIA general counsel knew what was going on, and were they talking? I mean, th that's why you, when you look at those memos, you get to see whose signature is on those, 
what were the gains, and who else received them? Joining us now, after coming back from what I hear was a fantastic service in memory of uh, former speaker Tom Foley, uh, he, is the, he is our regular at the table every Tuesday. He is former congressman representing 2nd Congressional District, Washington. He's Congressman Al Swift. Hi, Congressman. Hi. I'm delighted to make it down here. Glad to have you. Good, because we're about to, we're tearing into the Obama administration. We've already took care of Obamacare. You're off the hook on this. But this NSA stuff about tapping the phones of President Hollande of France and Andrea Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, is an absolute disaster for the administration. I, I just heard uh, Denise, uh, you know, not saying nice things about the president. I was shocked. shocked. <laughs> <laughs> and I you should have heard me. <laughs> and I just heard him give the third best speech at Foley's funeral, you know, and <laughs> come down here and he's being attacked. But, 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 but Constantinal, and I know you're just getting settled in right now, yeah. reality still dictates right now, is that... This president has, in fact, not only created a huge diplomatic issue that we've got that even John Kerry, I don't think, can get completely clean of, but the intelligence side, as a former committee chair, if, if, if an administration did something significant and they didn't report it back to the committee, you guys would be calling for people's heads. Well, I think they probably will. Uh, the, the interesting thing to me was in today's post, uh, who's, the, who's, the, who's the very liberal columnist? Uh, Dana Milbank. Dana. No. Uh, 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 Cohen? No. Yeah. Yeah. Cohen. Cohen. Richard Cohen. 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 Richard Cohen. Cohen. Just, just took the president's hide off. Today. Yeah, he did. And if that's what the liberals are saying, you can imagine what my good friend Alan is going to be saying. <laughs> Alan's already had a field day. Yeah, I'm so sorry swarming. you were not here earlier to hear my description of the Sharknado <laughs> that hit the White House just this week between Obamacare, NSA, Merkel. But so. Bob Hines, there's another problem mooning on the foreign diplomatic front. Huge chance for the Republicans to take some hide out of this administration. There's new evidence about Benghazi and what we actually knew is and, and when we knew it. Again, this is a I didn't know much, and we just yeah. found out a minute ago. This is a consistent argument coming out of this administration. When is somebody going to call this administration a task and saying that argument just does not hold water anymore? I think that's what the column did today. But I'm talking about Congress. I'm well, talking about the well, people who actually govern. I suspect so they're a little slow, but they'll get there. Yeah, there, there, there are going to be so many hearings. Since they're not legislating, at least they can hold hearings, and it's going to be hearing after hearing after hearing. I mean, Denise Krupp, this has got to make weeks. Chairman Darrell Issa just right ready to just hold hearings on this. Oh, my God. Not only is he going to hold hearings, but he's going to hire additional staff, and then we're all going to be paying for it because they're going to document They're going to put so many documentation and be buried in it. Alan Moore, does, does this, does what happened in the intelligence community, does what happened in Benghazi, does this maybe call for a special prosecutor? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, on the, you know, on the intelligence stuff, this is intelligence stuff. It's, it got out thanks to Snowden, and we're, we're reading about it, and when your secrets get out, um, they're secrets for a reason, and it's extraordinarily embarrassing, and we're going to have to totally reassess this, this system we put into place after, after 9-11 where we said, we had information that if we could have put the pieces together, we might have been able to figure this out and head off the fact that some Saudis are over here learning to fly airplanes. 
fly jet aircraft. What's that all about? And and some of the the, uh, the 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 traffic that we were picking up, but not putting together. So we said we need to get everybody talking to each other. So we 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 broke down some of these stovepipes. So everybody got the information, and then that allowed people like Bradley Manning and Edward Snowden to get this information and think there's something wrong here, and shoot it out to the world. So we we tried to fix a problem, and we, what we've now got is another problem that arguably is. It is just as large, but in a different way, because we're blowing our credibility. Congressman Al. Well, I, I was just saying that I think that, that, that Alan makes an excellent point. The, the uh, results of all of this, I'd like to, and, and I don't disagree with it, but I'd like to go back to, to uh, how in the hell was this allowed to happen? I can remember, Bob and I are old enough to remember Gary Powers, yeah, under the Eisenhower, and they caught him flying over Russia in a secret thing, and it was a huge embarrassment. And I felt embarrassed as an American, and I think President Eisenhower felt embarrassed. He was flying over the Soviet Union, for crying out loud, and in which you would assume we would have every reason to do so, and we felt embarrassed. Now we find we're, we're, we're tapping the president of Germany's phone and all this other stuff. Absolutely outrageous. I, I get a feeling that uh, Obama's probably gonna, not going to get a Christmas card from Chancellor Merkel this year. Well, if, if I got one from her, I wouldn't open it. <laughs> <laughs> Denise Krabbe. Like, you know, I, I lived in Germany for three years, um, and it was a very interesting time to live there. I lived in, uh, in West Germany. I lived in Heidelberg from 85 until 88. You know, the reason I was there was my father was in the military, and we were there because of the the, um, the construct that was created after World War II, wherein we were supposed to be able to provide support to Germany, and we were supposed to be there in case any any of the uh, the Soviet tanks came across the fold again. So, you know, there were a lot of close relationships that were developed. There were a lot of German war brides. There were a lot of, you know, just, again, relationships where people got to know each other over the years. And I really do think that some of those relationships are going to be destroyed because people are going to say, well, can I trust you? I mean, I, I thought you were my friend. I thought you were here to protect me. I, I thought you were here to help my country. And now they're hearing, no, actually, we're just there to spy on you. Well, you know, the funny thing about it is I was, I was, at, I was at an embassy uh, late last week. I don't want to mention the country, but went to the embassy, and they have you lock up your phone before you actually enter into the compound. So I locked up my phone, and they said, uh, you know, you don't really need your phone. I said, why is that? They said, well, you're going to listen to what we say anyway, so why bother? It, it, that is the mentality now that we're having to deal with with foreign governments is, hey, look, you're an American. You're going to be tapping our phones anyway. Open about it. This is not a good place for our diplomatic efforts in really trying to establish credibility back into the foreign community after what some would call a slight setback under the Bush administration. Bob Hines, we're not doing ourselves any favors. This could be worse than what George Bush did. It's pretty hard to see what we could do that would be, you know, that would be more deliberately uh, destructive of our own interests in foreign policy than we're we're doing today in all kinds of ways, and and I don't think the president is uh, is I don't I don't I don't I don't think that the administration has thought through a lot of stuff. I mean, 
The way that we've dealt with Syria, we've talked about before, it's a disaster. We've got a situation where the Saudis, our best friends we have in the Middle East, are so pissed off at us that they refuse to take a, a, a seat on the, on the uh, Security Council of the UN because they're so angry at the way we're operating in the Middle East. And everything we seem to be touching is, is crazy, and I don't know if we can recover. Scrap? I have to agree with Bob. I, I think there's an incredible lack of trust. And, and you know, it, 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 it's sad because during the Bush administration, I remember um, talking to European friends. They were like, oh, my God, I can't believe you have this president. This is awful. And then Barack Obama came in, and it's, wow, this is a great man. It's going to be a change. It's going to be a new relationship. And then they find out that apparently not. Apparently not only are we continuing the practice that started during the Bush administration, but we may actually be doing more than they did. And they're looking at us going, so why should we trust I mean, you? What are we doing? I mean, Alan Moore, the only thing possibly worse would be is if we found out that we were tapping Stephen Harper up in Canada and David in, uh, in, um, um, David Cameron in the, U- in the UK. Oh, I would say just wait. Um, <laughs> you know, remember, we're not. We, it, was, it was two weeks ago that we heard that in one month's time there were 70 million records in France that we grabbed, along with the President Hollande. And then last week it was the 60 million in Spain. So who knows? There's this, there's this drip, 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 which is particularly problematic. I'm reminded that, that, that when, when, when Putin... Putin gave, gave Snowden um, sanctuary in Russia. He said he could stay here, but not if he continues doing things that embarrass America. Um, I'm re- reflecting on that. I don't know how much he meant that. It was an odd statement at the time, but if I were Snowden, and I don't know if Snowden even has control of this stuff anymore, but if I were Snowden, I'd be getting very nervous that Putin might say, uh, we're sending you out of here. Um, and uh, and then his partner in crime, Glenn Greenwald, the, uh, the the Brazilian-based journalist who's so full of himself, who's just been signed on to do this new this new global news thing with the founder of eBay, a guy named P- Pierre Omidyar. Um, I wonder if Omidyar has any idea of what he's buying into here. He is he is picking up to help run this thing one of the most reviled people in all of Washington and slowly uh, more of America. Those are, those are kind of sidebars. The bigger issue here is this administration and the damage that is largely self-inflicted and it's coming uh, to two of these big things. You put Obamacare and our credibility with our allies uh, it blow them both up but, uh, Alan, the same I, I, week. I want to mention, you know, you, you mentioned Greenwald and, and, and Snowden. It's almost a double-edged sword. You know, Snowden, arguably a traitor, uh, dis- violated his, his public trust by disclosing uh, uh, top-secret information. But at the same time, this is almost stuff that we needed to know about in certain instances, like tapping the phone of Andrea Merkel. All right. So, no, I don't buy that. I, I don't buy that he's a traitor. I, I buy that he's a lawbreaker. He what if because I don't think his intent was to do grievous harm to America. I think he's done grievous harm to America, and he clearly broke laws because he violated oaths that he took. Um, but having said that, 
you know, I wouldn't try him for treason. I'd just lock him up for a long time for, for, for breaking the law. Security Act. And, and Greenwald is putting the whole First Amendment at some risk, it seems to me, given the fact that, that when we say it's okay a Snowden to break the law and turn material that is illegal to have into the hands of a press person, and that person can do whatever he or she wants, use his or her own judgment on what might constitute a, a security risk or security problem. That's not our system. And I want to go back to what Alan was talking about, that oath. That oath is something that I took repeatedly when I was on active duty. It's what I took when I went to TSA. It's something that I took as a political appointee. And I put my hand on the Bible and raised the other one and said, I will swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States, so help me God. So my question to everybody else who took that same oath is, what Constitution were you upholding when you decided to do some of this stuff? Good point. Uh, Congressman Al. Well, I, I don't want to divert from where this is going, but, but it seems to me that underlying all of this is a question of how could those of us who voted for Obama with such high hopes have somehow overlooked something pretty important and I think asked the people who were Republicans and voted for McCain for a whole bunch of other reasons. I suspect they didn't see this in Obama either. Uh, and so the question is, what, what did the American people overlook in electing this man? Because I think the answer to that may be instructive in terms of how we vote for other candidates in the future. That's a great point. Great point, Congressman Al. Uh, we've got 10 more minutes in this segment, and uh, obviously we're going to be replaying the John Dingle interview uh, as part of a best of for our last 30 minutes. So I'm going to take this opportunity to go to my favorite part of the show a little bit early. This is Tell Me a Story, where we talk about news, innuendo, gossip that we're hearing around the Beltway, outside the Beltway. Alan Moore, tell me a story. There was a brief reference earlier to mishandling things in Syria. Um, Syria is now the source of a huge breach between America and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is, is a monarchy. You know, we don't have huge things in common with them, but we do have, have had a connection of interests. We rely on them. They rely on us. They are furious with us about Syria and about Iran. Israel is furious with us about Syria and about Iran for different reasons. Um, and, and the international humanitarian community is appalled at what is going on in Syria. Just this week are reports about how the Syrian regime, Assad's regime, is preventing food and medical aid from getting into neighborhoods and areas and regions where groups unfriendly to Assad uh, are, are active. There is malnutrition, there's starvation, and there is disease. There are at least 10 cases of, are you ready for this? Polio now reported in Syria. This is already a humanitarian disaster of more than 100,000 dead, several million um, uh, displaced, the problem is growing. Meanwhile, our policy is work with Russia and work on chemical weapons and basically tie our hands of doing anything, 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 anything else. Um, we're paying, you know, we're on, on Obamacare, legitimately so, and on the NSA. This 
issue of Syria and what's going on could in an odd way be the be one of the worst legacies of this administration. You know what we're going to talk about that Obama's next week? Rwanda. We're going to talk about that next week. Denise Kreft, tell me a story. Common Core. For those of you who have children, there was a uh, program that was put into effect around the country in your schools called the Common Core. And so teachers are supposed to teach pursuant to the Common Core. Well, what I learned this week was that Common Core does not include uh, curriculum on uh, Thanksgiving, Martin Luther King, Veterans Day, Halloween, Valentine's Day, and a bunch of other holidays. And since it does not include teaching instruction on these subjects, teachers aren't required to teach them. Okay, ponder that one. So I'd encourage all of you to go to your local schools and say, so what's actually um, in the Common Core and, and what are you teaching? And, and the reason I say that is because I had an a, um, interesting conversation with my daughter's principal. I said, so Peter, Common Core doesn't cover Veterans Day. Are you teaching it? He said, uh, well, sometimes we might. I said, Peter, let me just help you out. I'm a veteran. Why don't I come in and supplement? Because apparently you don't have the curriculum, therefore I'm going to come in and I'm going to teach the students about Veterans Day. So for those of you who have children in schools, I encourage you to talk to your principals to find out what you have and then to help supplement them by talking to them about Veterans Day and, oh, let's first say Thanksgiving, to make sure that our students around the United States are actually getting the education they should be receiving. Bob Hines, tell me a story. It, um, it appears that there is new, uh, there's new evidence that the administration uh, was aware of impending problems in Benghazi and uh, did nothing about it uh, with respect to putting, you know, some uh, security in, uh, in, in, place. in place. And I gather that uh, it has hit the hill and it's beginning to resonate a bit. I don't know the details of it, but it's just, uh, it's just one more problem that the administration does not need. Right, right. My story is Tuesday. Next Tuesday is Election Day here in the United States. Uh, several key races, obviously the race for uh, Virginia governor, as well as uh, the election of the second term of Chris Christie in New Jersey, as well as some other key elections. But next Tuesday, Charlie Crist, the former Republican governor of Florida, is going to announce his candidacy as a Democrat for the governor's mansion going up against Republican Governor Rick Scott. It is going to be, if you think politics in Florida couldn't get any more bizarre after 2000, this is going to be a flaming shark show of mega proportions. Wait for that circus to hit the press. But Tuesday he is going to announce. We've gotten that straight out of Tallahassee. Uh, Congressman Al, I left the last uh, four minutes of the segment to you. Uh, I know you just got back from uh, what was a pretty magnificent ceremony honoring uh, former Speaker Tom Foley. How was it? It was bipartisan. I, I think it, you know, we need more honorable people to die so that we can have reasons for the Republicans and Democrats to come together and compliment each other on their ability to be good people and good people. Let me give you some specifics. <clears throat> 90-year-old Bob Michael, showing his age by needing help to get up onto the podium, gave a very moving talk and received, I didn't time it, but it had to be at least a two-minute standing ovation. <clears throat> Bill Clinton, of course, is a magnificent speaker. 
but his was also very nonpartisan or bipartisan. You had people there like former Vice President Walter Mondale, who came in for it, demonstrating his stuff. But so was the former Transportation Secretary, who has been a... Uh, Ray LaHood. Ray LaHood has been a guest on this program, was there. <clears throat> the Speaker, now I'm talking about John Binger, was incredibly generous and clearly nonpartisan. Nancy Pelosi was nonpartisan. Uh, it it was it was not a love fest as much as it was a respect fest, and I if given the two I'd pick the respect fest any day. <clears throat> the uh, good words were said about Newt Gingrich, who was sitting in the audience. Uh, good words were said about some, you know, fairly controversial Democrats as well. <clears throat> Getting down to the fact that. What you need in public office, you need integrity, you need honesty, and again and again, both Republicans and Democrats hit, you need to know how to compromise. So if there was anybody that was being criticized, it was the extremists who don't want to sit down and talk. <clears throat> it was a lovely thing for Tom Foley but it was a lovely thing to happen right now in our society when there is so much anger and distrust going on. You know, it's a shame. You know, we talk about political civility on this show more times than not, that the only time we see political civility in this town nowadays is at funerals. It's, it's, it's absolutely tragic. But, well, and, and Foley was probably one of the most civil politicians that served Period. No I, argument. He never said anything bad about anybody. <clears throat> no argument. Uh, no argument. And in a day that you've got uh, Senator Tom Coburn calling uh, Majority Leader Harry Reid a uh, an asshole, that well, that's not exactly political stability. I was in, I was in, a, in a Democratic Whips meeting once where I referred to one of the more outstanding public service, quote, unquote, they say they're serving the public, the do-gooders, and I called him a, a bad name. I think maybe it was the word you used. Yes. And I got a response out of the group. So I said it again, and I saw the speaker wince. You know, once he could put up with twice was more than he thought was appropriate. Uh, so that kind of leadership, you know, I didn't do that again, you know, having right. been kind of quietly chastised by the speaker by the way he wins. Right. Well, uh, on that note, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to rebroadcast a, a really great interview with a uh, longtime, actually Dean of the House, longtime member of Congress, John Dingell, uh, regarding several issues including his legacy and the just finished government shutdown uh, but we will be back live for election day coverage next Tuesday joining us will be special guest former RNC chairman Frank Ferenkoff is going to give us uh, his insight on this election and looking forward to 2014 and I believe we might even be able to get to talk a little 2016 politics Chris Christie for president and when we come back live we're going to be here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob, 
The place to be, baby. We'll, we'll see you live next week. Stand by after this quick break. We're going to have that rebroadcast of the Dingle interview. Have fun, folks. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town And joining us for this segment of Backroom Politics, we are honored to have uh, the member of Congress representing Michigan's 12th Congressional District. He is the Chairman Emeritus of the Commerce and Energy Committee. He is the Dean of the House. He is the Honorable uh, John Dingle. Mr. Chairman, thank you for joining us. This is an honor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, uh, Mr. Chairman, you know, I, I got to get the 300-pound gorilla out of the room, and I'm not talking about myself. It, we talking about uh, we're sitting in your office today, the day of the vote on a possible government shutdown. Um, it, it, it almost seems that the economy and the recovery is being held hostage by a possible government shutdown. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Where, where do we go from some place where we're at right now to possibly getting everybody back on track? Well, first of all, we never should have gotten to this place. Second of all, if people around here understood how the house should work, we wouldn't be in this mess. 
and we would have we would have used the committee system to run everything out of the caucus or out of the speaker's office, and so we wouldn't have had this trouble. We would have had a budget, and we would have run according to the rules that they had back in the days of the founding fathers. Because as you know, the House here has the rules of the British Parliament. If you look at our, at our rule book, it says. Jefferson's manual, which Jefferson wrote from the British Parliament, handed it to the Chamber of uh, Burgesses in Virginia, and then redid it so that he could have, give it to the House of Representatives. It's our, it's our rule books and precedents now. If we'd adhere to that, we wouldn't have this kind of nonsense because they understood how to allow the minority to be heard allow the majority to work as well, but you use the committee system so that it makes the House work. It gathers the facts, it helps members make the decisions, and it provides for an orderly mechanism for processing all kinds of legislative responsibilities. That includes very specifically the responsibilities of the House of Representatives over budget money, which we have totally disregarded this year and many times previously because of this nonsensical system. Well, Mr. Chairman, when, when, you know, after 58 years, you've seen many changes. You've seen the dynamics of Congress, particularly the House of Representatives, change. I know that in the days when uh, you and uh, Congressman Al Swift were colleagues in the House, there was, a, there was always the ability to compromise. There was always the ability to cross the aisle and make deals and keep government functioning and running efficiently. Now it seems that that's almost a liability. There's no more crossing the aisle, and you're one of the champions of crossing the aisle. You've done that for 58 years. Why have we gotten to that? Partisanship. But interestingly enough, it's not really partisanship. The Republican Party is now in a position where they are at war with each other. And Boehner, has, the speaker, has become largely irrelevant. It's really a shame because he's a good man and a decent legislator. So that's a terrible, that's a terrible shame. And the fact of the matter is, until we get an understanding that compromise is not a dirty word, that cooperation is a good word, and that those are the things the founding fathers intended we should do, we're not going to make this place go. Bob Hines? Mr. Chairman, how do we get back to the way it was, the way it worked? Well, what do we need to do differently? Bob, you and Al remember the days when that was so. Yes. Both were here and very effective participants on the, on the Hill, and, and all three of you gentlemen remember, remember what was important. There was, a, there was a comedy, there was a respect, there was a respect for each other, there was a respect for the system. We had a bunch of people that, that, are, that before they knew where the restrooms were, we're making important speeches, telling us how the government should run, and, and with, with no significant knowledge of how the place should work. And this is, is a calamity for the country. They have no appreciation of the needs of the country. They don't understand the consequences of these shutdowns. And the consequences of the shutdowns are serious. But first of all, the country is now in a very fragile condition economically. And, and this was not so the last couple of times we had a shutdown. But we don't have the strength that we had before to come out of this mess unless we begin to work together. So that's one of our major problems. The other thing that we have to do is we have to develop a respect for ourselves and the system and for the country. 
and to remember that 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 businesses withholding investment, businesses not making judgments because they don't have the certainty. They can't go out and invest because they don't know what's going to happen. So money is piling up, jobs are not being created, and businesses not producing goods and services and we're becoming increasingly anti rather anti competitive and less and less competitive because we don't understand the duty of this body and its members to work together for the common good. Mr. Chairman, is, is it a matter of, uh, one of the great stories that Congressman Al talks about is the, uh, the question of are you here to get reelected or are you here to govern? It, it seems that in today's class of congressmen, the new school members of Congress are so busy trying to get elected and not trying to govern. Is that a problem that you see facing oh. Congress right now? It's a terrible problem. Uh, money is, and the chase for money has become a, a major undertaking in this place. And more importantly, the, the consideration of legislation is done in a way where there's really no consideration. No deep thought goes up to it. Committees have got 50, 50 to 80 members in them, and by the time each member gets his five minutes, the week is gone. So we're 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 in serious serious trouble. We have a system that simply has ceased to work. And one of the surprising things is the Senate has now become the legislative body. The House is incapable of legislating, and 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 we have members that that know nothing whatsoever about the rules. They know none of the legislative history. They know none of the history of the country. And, and, and it appears very strongly that they really don't give a damn about those matters, with the result that the country is being hurt with all the nonsense that goes on here and the refusal to make the system work. Well, it's part of the problem in, in the system. You know, looking back at your career uh, over the 58 years, you seem to have been changing districts every 10 years and it's been moving further west outside of originally Detroit. Is redistricting hampering part of Congress's ability to operate? Yes and no. Uh, I think the kind of bad members that we have here that disregard their responsibilities would come under a different system of redistricting. But the harsh fact of the matter is that redistricting has been, however, a very serious problem uh, in the South and in other places too. Districts have all become identical in terms of character. They're absolutely, uh, everybody in that district is the same. It's called packing, where you pack the minorities into a few districts, go to the South and you'll see, full, full of solid black districts full of solid white districts, and they don't talk to each other. There's no compromise. That's why the Senate can work together because they represent a broad base of Americans. In the House, we don't. And the result, you see, we're incapable of legislating, and we're not answerable to anybody when we go home, because everybody agrees with us. Bob Hines. Mr. Chairman, um, would the answer uh, to that question, that problem that you have just identified, which I agree with completely, is the solution to that to take redistricting out of the hands of the state legislatures and do what several states have begun to move toward, commissions 
of senior, uh, like former governors and Supreme Court members who develop compact and contiguous districts, don't break up, don't break up communities, and districts don't end up being 65-35, but you get districts, let's say, that are more like 55-45, so a member, someone running for office has got to appeal to more than just his best friends in order to get elected. Well, you see, Bob, you're absolutely right on that. Your old boss and my dear friend, uh, Bud Brown was in here not long back, and we talked about it. the very thing that we're talking about. The harsh fact of the matter is, it doesn't make a difference who does it, as long as it's done differently. California, which does some odd things from time to time, uh, has seen fit to set up a new kind of ballot. Everybody said, oh, this is going to make all kinds of changes. Well, it did, but it never made, it never made the changes they thought. And the, the districts are much more representative. And one of the problems is that uh, there are probably less than 40 districts in this Congress that, that would move with a significant change in public attitude. And the result is that things go on the same. And in Michigan, we have we elect Democratic senators, Democratic governors, and Democratic presidents. And guess what? We elect overwhelmingly Republican Senate and House back home. But we also find that that uh, we elect five out of fourteen members of Congress. Now, this is not an argument for electing Democrats or electing Republicans. It's just simply as a statement that we have become so adroit with computers and all the new technologies in setting up districts that are, are, are one party and that favors a guy, of a particular political party who runs, that, that there is no debate, no discussion, and this really an election doesn't have any meaning at all. It's a primary. And one of the evils that, that's attended by this is a lot of my Republican colleagues, and there's plenty of decent Republicans around here, uh, are told if they vote for certain things that really are, are in the broad overall interest, they're going to have a, a primary financed by the cooks and by other people of vast resources. Of course, the Supreme Court has said that you can spend any damn amount of money now you want on politics, don't have to identify who does it or why or anything else, throughout most of the campaign reforms that we put in place. So now that this place is, is just literally up for sale. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to uh, move into, into a kind of a historical area a little bit. We can get back to some of these issues in a minute. You've been here 58 years. 57. 57 yeah. years. Well, you'll be here 58. Uh, <laughs> uh, if the Lord says yes. Yeah. And, and I have a number of questions to ask along that. First of all, who, in your judgment, was the greatest speaker you served with? Raven. Raven. That doesn't surprise me. And right, and right behind you, John McCormick. John McCormick. Well, we were talking earlier, and I said Rayburn, and Bob said McCormick. So, <laughs> well, you're both right. And 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 another 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 great one was Chip O'Neill. Yes. And, and and but they played by the old 
roles. The way they were played by in, in the days of Jefferson and the others. So that they understood that the speaker presides, he doesn't rule. And that the and that everybody Al, you remember when I got to be chairman of this committee, well, I want to see the parliamentarian. And I asked him, I asked him, I said, what am I going to do to be a good chairman? Because to be perfectly truthful, I'm scared that. And I said, what do I do about that? He said, well, there's two things. First, you've got to be fair. And second, you've got to be, you've got to appear fair. And he said, you've got to give the minority an opportunity to be heard. And you've got to give the majority an opportunity to work their will. And if those things are properly mixed, we'll do we'll legislate well, because we'll hear from everybody, the right, the left, in between. And if you'll remember, and Bob, you'll remember this too, when you were on committee staff, you'll recall that we would always hear from everybody. And the legislation that came out of the committee would pass overwhelmingly because we worked together. And it was better legislation because everybody was heard and because everybody participated. I, I remember when I first joined the committee uh, and you were first chairman of the committee, Jim Broyhill was the ranking Republican on the committee. Uh, a nice southern gentleman from North Carolina. North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, the, the two of you had some real tussles on issues on which you disagreed, but you also worked well together when that uh, when that fit the, the occasion. Well, more importantly than now, we knew we had to work together in the public interest. And Brian used to come to me and complain that people were saying that his first name was Dingle because there were so many Dingle Broyhill bills, so many Dingle Broyhill amendments that were moving through. And Bud Brown, who was Bob's great friend, was my also great friend, came to me one day and, and after we had a particular nasty series of fights, he was the far right and I was the far left said to me, you know, Johnny said, my wife is talking about divorcing me and she's going to lay you in as a, uh, as, as, as a participant in the divorce. She said, she's going to call you a correspondent. I said, why? She said, you're spending, she, she said, I'm spending so much time with you and so little time with her. <laughs> and, and, and what we always did was we always had great friendships across the aisles between our subcommittee chairman and our chairman of subcommittees and our chairman of full committees and the ranking members. And that was the way it should be. There should be respect and affection. And everybody should understand we've all got rights that have got to be protected here. And those rights are really not our rights as members of Congress. Those are the rights of the people out there that we serve. So I always tell the new members, I say, look, you're the full equal of everybody else around here. You're no better, no worse. And you remember that. You insist on that because that's important for you to be able to serve the people that you represent. Let me ask you one more kind of historical question. Aside from the speakers, uh, well, let me put it this way. When I, when I first arrived here in 1978, I, was, I wondered, seriously, I wondered, are, are there any giants left? I remembered uh, Sam Rayburn. I remembered... You know, some names like that. 
but I just didn't know whether there were any giants. Well, I, I found at least two. You were one, uh, and I think by far the, the, the greatest giant. Uh, and the other was probably Rostenkowski. Uh, people who could get things done and, uh, and, 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 and work across the aisle. But of all of the people you have worked with over your 57 years, uh, who comes to mind as some of the really good members that you worked with? Well, you were one. Bud Brown was one. Uh, Roy Hill, wonderful man. A uh, little guy by the name of Gross on the Republican side. He used to drive, drive um, McCormick and and Raver out of their gourds <laughs> by making them trouble. But he made him, he made him, he made him test things out. He became the ranking member on one of my on a subcommittee I ran. Everybody said, "Oh, this is going to be terrible." I said, "Hell no, it's not going to be terrible. I'm going to have a harder job of convincing him." But if I've convinced him, I'm not going to have to worry about anything on the right because he's a fair and a decent man. And I had all kinds of guys like that. So real Cotty was another one. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there were all kinds of members. And they would always, you know, the guys that get the headlines. The headline grabbers are not necessarily always the best guys around here. And I keep trying to tell people, you know, I, I've had a wonderful I'm grateful for it. But I'm just a very ordinary guy who's had an extraordinary job and who played by the rules and who tried to be fair and decent. And I think anybody who comes to this place and tries to do those things will be a success and will be remembered as well. That's why you're remembered well. Well, Mr. Chairman, along those lines, uh, how influential was your father in you, in forming or shaping the way that you looked at being a member of Congress? Well, he was, of course, a very profound influence in my life. He was a dean of the Michigan delegation. He was a real leader. He was one of the philosophers of the New Deal. Of the New Deal. He was one of the authors of Social Security. He was the author of Medicare. He was author of most of the labor legislation in the New Deal, which fixed it so that a working man could belong to a union. Before that, it was illegal per se for a guy to belong to a union and to um, bargain over wages, working conditions, and fun. And before that, it, to to have to to be a member of the union, you had to wear your union button on the back of your lapels or underneath your cap, and 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 then then you could. Well, that created the middle class. The unions brought us the things that we have today. And they stood for things like education of everybody, health and health care. They were able always, the powerful unions, to get what they needed for their members. But they understood they had to do more for the people. So the, he, those were things he was very, very proud of. One of the things he was always interested in was conservation and how we're going to save some of the things that we treasure that make this country such a wonderful place to live. Those were things that he loved, and things that meant something to him. I, you, you rarely hear that. And one of the things that I remember about this when I was a young fellow was they would describe a member of Congress two ways. They would say, he is sincere. That meant that he was an honest, decent man, that he was 
trying to serve the people that he represented. And, and, and so that man would have great respect in almost anything he did because they knew that he was sincere. That meant a lot. Then they'd say, he is insincere. And quite frankly, all you got to do is look around here and see what insincerity is, what it means to the house and to the country by the behavior of some of these clowns that we have in this place. And, and the result of that is that, that the country is hurt by that. And so if they said, he's insincere, that just made him a guy that you were not going to respect and that you were not going to follow and you were not going to work with because he didn't have the interest of the country at heart. Now that's all gone behind us. I don't hear that. Now I used to hear some other words that were important. Social justice. How we see to it that this country is fair and decent. How we take care of the least of us. And Dad used to always be concerned. How do we see to it that a guy who has no hope and no help gets a decent way of making it? Not that you come to the Congress with ability to throw goodies around or that you're going to, you're going to take care of all these people or that, that these are just throwaways on a bunch of welfare queens. We don't do that. And, and, and we audit our program, see to it that this kind of rascality doesn't go on. But to just see to it that the least of us had a basically decent existence. And that was viewed as something that was really important. Well, you don't hear that word anymore. And I you have you basically followed those issues that you just named that your father liked. You've introduced the, the healthcare, a health care bill every uh, term you've been in Congress. I And I want to follow up on that, Congressman Al, if, if I can, you know, following in those... We also worked on your, on your salmon out there in the West, too. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, he, he, he said, I came and I said, can you help me with this little thing that is a regional issue? And he said, he said yes, I, I will. But it's going to cost you a lot of fish. <laughs> well, it, was, it, was, it was a chew I told that. The, the electric utilities came in and said, we're having trouble getting ourselves licensed on the, on the dams because their, dams were, their dam permits were expiring after 50 years. I said, fellas, you've come to the right place. We're going to help you, but you're going to buy a lot of fish. <laughs> and, and we did. We destroyed the salmon in the west. The salmon are summer coming back a little bit. In the east, we have all kinds of returns on fishery that we didn't have before. So these things are doable if somebody understands we have a broader duty than just our particular concern. And we can look past our own particular concerns and we can protect values other than what might be our particular values, which is one of the reasons it's so important that we have a lot of differing views represented in Well, if you didn't tell me I had to buy a lot of fish, no, I, didn't. I wonder why I bought so much <laughs> many fish. <laughs> you stole a lot of fish. Yeah, oh, there you go.
Hey, Mr. Chairman is one of the primary authors of the Affordable Care Act, following in your father's legacy of promoting universal health care. It seems that Americans forget that at one time this was a bipartisan issue. I go back to the days when uh, Ted Kennedy, yourself, and President Nixon looked at the uh, possible bipartisan solution back during the Nixon administration. Why have we lost sight of the fact that at one time we all agreed and is it a matter of we just didn't look at it, or has it become too bipartisan since then? Well, if the place drips solicitations for money, there's all kinds of disregard for those kinds of values. But one of the problems you have in this place now is that Nixon could never be elected as a Republican. He really, quite frankly, is too decent for a lot of these tea braggers. And, 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 and Goldwater, same thing. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if what Reagan would have the same problems today, too. And so, the, one interesting thing, this health care bill is basically not a democratic bill. Most people don't realize that the mandate met Romney. Republican candidate for president. He was the guy who pushed it up in, up in Massachusetts. They also forget that the basic idea came from Bob Dole, who was the Republican minority leader, or majority leader, or minority leader in the Senate. And they don't remember that Chafee from Rhode Island, who's a progressive Republican, came up with the same idea. And then most of those ideas were, have been hanging around the Senate for a long time. And so the Democrats, to get something done, figured, well, this will work better than just more wrangling about single pair. I still think 